This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with two co-authors of our lead article, Dr. Gitu Bandoria, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Command Hospital in Pune, India. And with my friend and colleague, Dr. Greg Nelson, who is in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the Tom Baker Cancer Center in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. They uh, are publishing our lead article titled Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, ERAS in Gynecologic Oncology, an International Survey of Perioperative Practice. Welcome. So, Thanks so much for having us. Of course. No, thank you. Thank you both for, uh, for taking part in the podcast. So, Greg, I wanted to, um, to start with you. And uh, first, uh, congratulations on all the amazing work that you have done with the ERAS Society and uh, uh, the advancement of the field in, in enhanced recovery after surgery. And, and certainly, congratulations again for the guidelines on enhanced recovery. So I wanted to ask you, Greg, if you can start by just discussing briefly uh, what is ERAS uh, for our members of the audience? Sure, of course. Um, so enhanced recovery after surgery is a surgical quality improvement program that uh, started a little over a decade ago uh, by a group of European surgeons who uh, were challenged uh, by some of the traditional surgical practices such as bowel preparation uh, and the overnight fasting rule. Essentially, uh, these surgeons found that many of the commonplace surgical practices of the day uh, were not only lacking in evidence, but in fact uh, interfered with their efforts to prepare patients for surgery and allow them to recover. Um, ultimately, these findings led them to adoption of new practices that actually uh, decreased the stress response associated with surgery. Um, you know, common ERAS practices uh, include omission of bowel preparation, targeting a normal volume state, uh, early feeding, uh, avoidance of narcotics. And these recommendations, among others, are what we know today as ERAS guidelines, which are available for many surgical specialties, including our own. And implementation of ERAS guidelines uh, is associated with decreased length of hospital stay, decreased complications, um, improve patient satisfaction and also uh, savings for the healthcare systems. So, Greg, I've, and you know, certainly, um, we see the value in enhanced recovery, and and uh, and I mean, one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight this this particular article is because, you know, I, I think that many institutions have implemented enhanced recovery already as their their standard of care. Um, and, and we learned from this article that that may not be the case, uh, at, at a global level. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to then follow up on that is what, what do you think are the, the reasons for the barriers in establishing enhanced recovery, uh, programs and a subsequent question to that, uh, what do you consider, uh, that are the reasons for ERAS programs uh, having more difficulty, particularly in developing countries? Yeah, so those are great questions. Um, I think in terms of barriers in general terms, it really relates to uh, resistance to change. 
Um, you know, we as specialists, uh, subspecialists, I think we, we think we know best. Um, but, you know, as we indicated in the paper, historically, uh, surgeons' beliefs and uh, perioperative practices have typically come from their own surgical training, uh, practical experience, of course, expert opinion. And we know that expert opinion is the lowest on the scale in terms of evidence strength. Um, but we need to be open to the fact that, you know, some of our practices are outdated and, you know, a change may be in order that can actually benefit the patient. Um, another barrier I see is that many doctors practice within their own silos and fail to recognize that, you know, what they do actually impacts the patient all along the surgical continuum. So, you know, what the anesthesiologist does in the OR can affect how your patient feels in recovery and on, on the ward. You know, I also hear from surgeons that in, in some units they can't get their anesthesiologist at their site to become interested in ERAS. Mm -hmm. But, you know, also at other centers, it, it may actually be, you know, the surgeons who are, who are the barriers. Um, you bring up a really good point about developing countries. Um, you know, I think some of the barriers that I just mentioned may be relevant, uh, but I think there, you know, could be other factors at play. Um, surgical services, I think, unfortunately, have long been neglected in some of the low- and middle-income countries because, in fact, you know, the prevalence of communicable disease uh, in those countries is really the largest contributor to disability and death. Mm -hmm. So um, recently there was a World Health Assembly resolution that was passed, which... Um, we'll be championing uh, inclusion of surgery and anesthesia in global health and national health care plans. So I think this will be a prime opportunity for surgical programs such as ERAS to take hold in these countries. Yeah. So, Gitu, um, what led you to conducting this survey? Were you uh, concerned that this concept uh, was not implemented at a global level? Yeah, so uh, I came across uh, this study recently published in the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer done by Or et al., where they assessed uh, ERAS adoption among the Society of Gynecologic Oncology members, and the study was concluded in uh, 2018. So this study inspired me to conduct uh, a similar study which I initially uh, started uh, among the Indian uh, gynae oncology practitioners, and then gradually um, uh, it spread across the globe and uh, uh, many other societies participated. And uh, I had an in initial impression that uh, although most clinicians talk about ERAS, uh, probably they don't really practice it. Mm -hmm. And this suspicion was the prime motivation behind uh, taking this survey to uh, all the gyne uh, as many gynae oncologists across uh, different countries in the world. Yeah, I share that uh, that same uh, feeling in that you often hear uh, many institutions saying, certainly, yes, we practice enhanced recovery, but when you actually look at yeah. each of the parameters, uh, they're often not complying with those uh, parameters. So as a follow-up uh, question, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, certainly a sign of the times, uh, different ways of approaching um, data collection. You used uh, social media as a forum for conducting uh, this survey. Um, why did you think this was ideal? And uh, what do you consider are some of the advantages and disadvantages of using social media 
for this type of uh, study? Yeah, uh, so I used uh, four different uh, platforms to disseminate the survey. Uh, so electronic mails, uh, Twitter, uh, WhatsApp groups, and uh, the International Gynecological Cancer Society's uh, new uh, application called Social Link was also used mm -hmm. to contact uh, practitioners across the world. Uh, as far as uh, advantages, uh, disadvantages of social media are concerned, I feel social media has a much larger reach compared to any single platform that can be used. And uh, people across the globe, across different continents, different cities, can be contacted, uh, connected through social media. And it did help us. Uh, and finally, we could achieve, uh, we could, uh, achieve responses across 62 countries. Uh, a disadvantage is uh, uh, that uh, there's a problem uh, uh, assessing how many people would actually uh, see the survey and uh, maybe a precise calculation of a response rate. Yeah. Yeah, and actually that, that uh, brings me to the next question that I had uh, because, you know, typically when we look at the survey, one of the first things that we always go to is, well, what was the response rate? And, and, uh, and I would imagine, obviously, when, when conducting a survey uh, with social media, how, how do you know how many people actually received it and, and what is that denominator? So, yes, that, that was a challenge uh, in our study, and uh, the platform uh, that was used to create uh, the survey, that is SurveyMonkey uh, platform, so it does give us feedback as to uh, how many responses have been received. Uh, but only if people open through electronic mails, it gives us uh, a background uh, number mm -hmm. as to uh, how many people actually opened it up. Uh, through web links or uh, through Twitter, uh, it's difficult to actually get the true response rate. And um, yes, that's that's a challenge uh, when we are conducting studies through social media. And that's why in this study also, we really couldn't cal uh, calculate the response rate. Right. So now let, let's get on to the uh, results. Um, uh, what, what did you find with regards to, uh, you know, implementation of enhanced recovery around the world. Um, also interested in, in who responded um, to the survey. Yes, so uh, four uh, national gynecologic oncology societies uh, participated in our survey. So these were Association of uh, Gynecologic Oncologists of India, uh, the Turkish Society of Gynecologic Oncology, the British Gynecological uh, Cancer Society, and the Polish uh, Gynecologic Oncology Society. And uh, we uh, received a total of 464 responses uh, from 62 nations. Ten of them were uh, uh, non-surgical practitioners. So either they were uh, medical oncologists or uh, clinical oncologists or pathologists. So those 10 responses were excluded from the final analysis, uh, which left us with 454 responses. Among them, 64% uh, of respondents were uh, gynecologic oncologists, 17% were uh, gynecologists, 15% were surgical oncologists, and 4% were general surgeons. Uh, when we divided the, the respondents uh, based on uh, geographical locations, 60% were from Asia, 16% from Europe, 13% from America, 5% from Africa, 3% from Oceania, 
and 3% uh, did not uh, reveal their uh, locations. Uh, as far as ERAS protocol adoptions uh, was concerned, at an institute level, this was found to be 37%. And uh, when we stratified this further, uh, as per the geographical locations, uh, Europe had uh, the highest ERAS implementation with 37%. America uh, had 33%, Asia had 18 and Africa uh, had 10%. So then now my, uh, my next question actually is back to Greg is, you know, 37% uptake of ERAS. Uh, and some might say, you know, that's actually quite low. And then also considering that perhaps this, this 37% represents an enthusiastic number as those who respond likely to have the program and, and or, or certainly have an interest in the in the program, um, also considering that that thirty seven percent may not have full absolute compliance with the program. So, what what's going on here? Uh, why why such a, a low integration of uh, of ERAS programs? And and uh, what do you think is contributing to this? Yeah. Um so I, I agree with you. Thirty-seven uh, percent uh, was low, uh, and in, you know may actually be an overestimate. Uh, certainly, as I said before, I think the main problem uh, is that it takes effort to change, and, and there needs to be um, you know an impetus to get people to uh, start to develop their ERAS program. Um, earlier, we talked about barriers. I think. You know, what we also need to talk about is, you know, why people should take the leap and start to implement ERAS. So, you know, how do we increase that uptake? Um, so, you know, people often ask me, you know, what's in it for them? Um, I usually say, well, maybe you should be looking at, you know, what's in it for your patients. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so far to date, uh, it's quite a number of studies on the impact of ERAS in gynecologic oncology. You know, have shown that patients who undergo major cytoreductive surgery, even including bowel resection, mm -hmm. you know, if they're managed according to ERAS principles, they can leave mm -hmm. hospital as, as, as early as post-op day three. Um, we also know that complications can be reduced uh, by as high as 20%. Um, and these benefits don't come at the expense of increased readmission rates. Um, you know, sometimes barriers occur at a hospital administration level uh, you know we sometimes we'll have teams that want to do it but the administrators say that uh, they just can't afford it well hmm. from a health economic standpoint we know the literature says that you know return on investment ratios for ERAS can be as high as four so for every one dollar invested you get four dollars back uh, you know this should get those hospital administrators attention that they need to start doing ERAS right so, Gitu, now you mentioned Asia and Africa. Uh, those are also very low rates of implementation. Um, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, so uh, if when we look at the origin of uh, the concept of enhanced recovery, uh, it originated in Europe. Uh, Professor Kellett was uh, the first uh, proponent of uh, enhanced recovery protocols, and that was in Denmark. And uh, later on, when the society uh, was also established, it was, it was established in Sweden back in 2010. Uh, since then, uh, many more national regional societies have been added. 
So now we have ERAS USA, ERAS UK, Enhanced Recovery Canada, Enhanced Recovery Latin America. However, there is no such formal ERAS society that exists either in Asia or Africa. In fact, the first uh, ERAS Asia conference was held just about a year ago in Singapore. So uh, I feel that uh, such organized society in these two large uh, regions of the world will probably go a longer way in dissemination and propagation of ERAS protocols. Also, there are uh, possible disparities as far as surgical care delivery is concerned in these continents. There, is issue, there are issues of uh, organized health care, health insurance status, access to uh, tertiary care centers, where ERAS protocols are more like... Great. Um, so now, Greg, uh, one of the things that I noticed that was under low compliance was the carbohydrate loading, uh, the fasting guidelines, the use of bowel prep, use of nasogastric tubes and uh, peritoneal drains, as well as early feeding. Basically, these are like the main pillars of enhanced recovery. So why is it so hard to get surgeons, despite concrete evidence, to change your dogma, and, and how do we implement such changes? Yeah, great question. Uh, I agree. Uh, these obviously are some of the core ERAS practices that I hope most people would be practicing. Um, I have met with many surgeons, uh, and when I ask them about ERAS, they often tell me that they actually think there's you know maybe too many elements in the protocol, to try to start a program is overwhelming. Um, you know, what I tell them and what I would encourage others to do is, you know, not expect to have 100% compliance to all the components of the ERAS protocol overnight. Um, you know, pick one element in an ERAS protocol. For example, early feeding. Uh, start with that simple practice change. You know, once you see how your patients benefit from this simple change, start to introduce more elements of the protocol. Um, you'll see that, you know, it actually becomes addictive as you and your team, you know, uh, start to iterate towards improved compliance. And we know from several studies in gynecologic oncology that there's a dose-response relationship between ERAS compliance and improved outcomes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I, that I really, uh, again, it, it's, it's a recurring theme that I noticed of, of the 63% of respondents are using bowel prep routinely. 56% uh, of respondents use nasogastric tubes routinely post-surgery. Um, why? Um, please put this to rest. Tell us why we should abandon this practice. Yeah, uh, yeah I agree. The message could not be more clear. Stop using bowel prep and stop using nasogastric tubes. Um, you know, the ERAS guidelines are unambiguous that mechanical bowel preparation is discouraged before gynecologic oncology surgery, um, even when bowel surgery is planned. Um, I think there's some sense that this will be, you know, magically protective um, against leak or against, you know, surgical site infections. But, you know, high-level evidence shows no benefit from mechanical bowel preparation and in fact is associated with adverse outcomes such as you know low volume status dehydration um for the record i do not bowel prep under any circumstances period <laughs> um in terms of nasogastric tube use 
Uh, we know this is associated with patient discomfort. It increases the risk of post-operative respiratory infection, and it does not reduce the risk of wound dehiscence or anastomotic leak. So please stop these practices. Yeah. And um, Greg, one of the other things also is that I, I saw that um, 75% actually of the respondents used epidurals and, and 48% used the TAP block, um, the transverse abdominus block. Um, did those numbers surprise you? That, I mean, to me, they seemed uh, quite high. And, and as a follow-up question to that, what should be the ideal analgesic modality for an enhanced recovery program in gynecologic surgery? Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, there is quite an evidence gap currently with respect to the optimal analgesic modality for gynecologic oncology surgery. Um, you know, it could relate to um, a wide spectrum of sort of approaches or, you know, surgeries that we do. But, you know, what I can tell you is whatever you choose, you know, you make sure that you're using a narcotic sparing approach. Mm -hmm. Um you know, unfortunately, we are still seeing uh, centers who will be using, you know, patient-controlled analgesia with narcotics. I mean, that, that really should be abandoned. Mm -hmm. um, epidural use was higher than I thought we would see. Uh, but, you know, it, it's actually aligned with the European approach that does favor uh, regional anesthesia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Pedro, as you're aware, many of the North American ERAS programs, such as mine in Alberta or yours at MD Anderson, you know, have moved away from epidurals because mm -hmm. of a high risk of um, failure, hypotension, um, and delayed early mobilization. Um, you know, uh, for our midline laparotomies, we have actually achieved some success with, you know, the use of tap blocks placed by the surgeon and then followed by scheduled non-narcotic meds. Uh, you know, using this approach, we've been able to avoid both epidural and patient-controlled analgesia in the majority of cases. So mm -hmm. agree, probably some good research needs to be targeted at these areas, but for the people who are listening to the podcast, I would really just encourage you to try to minimize using narcotics if at all possible. Yeah, and I think that's the, definitely the overriding message. Uh, so thank you for, for stressing that. So Gitu, now, um, if 90% agreed that ERAS does not increase complications, and 78% reported that it was safe, and 80% reported that it improved patient outcomes. You know, certainly, obviously, th these are all very high percentages reporting very enthusiastic results, um, yet the, the, the numbers of implementations are, are low. Um, wh where do you see the problem lies? Do you feel it's, it's, it's almost like psychological that doctors just have a difficult time uh, uh, changing their ways? How do we how do we understand this a little bit better? Yeah, so this is exactly what I said in the beginning that uh, clinicians uh, talk about it, they probably think about it, and they reportedly agree with the ERAS principles. But when it comes down to translating practice, uh, it's missing. Probably uh, uh, there are a few issues that could be barriers uh, here. So I feel uh, one of them could be the um, uh, ability to make a, a, an ERAS team because a team concept is extremely crucial to implication, uh, implementation of ERAS protocols. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless the institute uh, has an ERAS protocol implemented, it's probably difficult to find all the three champions of ERAS. 
So uh, we are the surgeons. We 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 uh, find uh, likewise uh, anesthesiologists also. But I feel it's difficult to find an ERAS nurse in uh, absence of a institutional protocol. Also, there seems to be resistance um, at times on the part of our anesthesiology colleagues in implementing ERAS protocols, especially the NPO or nothing by mouth after midnight practice. Mm -hmm. uh, lastly, there could also be a resistance to change uh, among us, uh, probably because um, the evidence-based practice takes time to replace the so-called experience-based practice, <laughs> probably more so among uh, us surgeons. Greg, uh, now, do we know if there's any similar data for other uh, specialties as it pertains to global uptake of ERAS programs? Yeah, so there's certainly a number of studies describing uptake of ERAS in other specialties, but, you know, these surveys are limited uh, typically to just a couple of countries or a single region. Um, there are no surveys that... Um, you know, Gidu and I are aware of that have results represented from such a broad range of countries, mm -hmm. such as um, in our study. Um, I will say that in some of the other studies, the uptake of ERAS principles is also low across a number of domains, just like we found in our study. So it kind of looks like everyone needs ERAS help, um, not just in gynecological oncology. Yeah. So now, what do you feel are the, the main limitations uh, of the study, and, and what would you recommend to do differently for anyone planning on doing a, a social media survey? Yeah, so the main limitation uh, which we found was the number of responses from individual countries. Uh, so out of 62 countries that we had responses from, only 24 had uh, three or more responses uh, from a given country. And uh, we were actually uh, in the process of getting more national, national societies on board for this survey when uh, the ongoing pandemic it stalled uh, the progress of our survey and we had to uh, kind of foreclose it. Mm -hmm. uh, another limitation that uh, was there was that the survey uh, questionnaire was only available in English language. So this could be a barrier in achieving response from countries where English is not the first language or probably not even the second language. And uh, yes, uh, there always uh, remains an inherent uh, reporting bias in any survey. So there, there could be a difference in the response uh, which is provided and the actual practice. Uh, if anyone else wants to conduct a similar survey, uh, a similar study, uh, my suggestions would be uh, that uh, two suggestions basically. First, uh, to have different language versions of the survey uh, so that you get a better response and better representation from uh, different parts of the world and uh, more collaborations between national societies uh, so that, uh, again, a higher response uh, could be achieved. Yeah, absolutely. Some great suggestions. So now, Greg, with this information, what should the ERAS Society do? Yeah, so uh, from an ERAS society perspective, um, you know, the results presented in this paper are very uh, informative and telling, uh, simply with regards to how much work is still left to do. Um, you know, the ERAS society does have some implementation programs currently underway 
uh, and planned for, you know, countries across Asia and Africa, for example. But these programs are very much in their infancy. Um, you know, uh, we continue to work with teams to get them to review their baseline data um, and to try to, um, you know, iterate towards improved uh, compliance. Um, we definitely look forward to repeating this survey a few years down the road, and hopefully we'll be able to report on improved uptake of ERAS globally. Well, thank you both very much, and again, congratulations.